Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Our Bible reading today is from the book of Revelation, chapter 2, Revelation chapter 2, 12 to 17. We're in a short series looking at seven letters to the seven churches in the opening three chapters of Revelation. And here we come today to chapter 2, verse 12, to the church in Pergamum. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some there who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone, that no one knows except the one who receives it. Amen. Neither one thing nor the other, containing a fatal flaw, weakened, damaged, and made vulnerable, reduced in quality and value, and impaired. Those are just some of the Oxford English Dictionary definitions of what it means for something to be compromised. Compromised. Now, some compromises are good, aren't they? Of course, a a morning exploring the town and an afternoon by the pool. That might be a compromise that keeps a marriage happy on a summer holiday. Meeting somebody halfway. we, We do it all the time, don't we? But some things and some people should never, ever meet in the middle. Here is a letter in front of us today from the Lord Jesus to one of his churches, and he is telling them that they must stop meeting the world halfway, that they must stop meeting them in the middle. The church in Pergamum, verses 12 to 17, is not a worldly church. This is not a church that has crossed all the way over to the other side, that has sold the family silver, hook, line, and sinker. No, this is a good church, but it is a compromised church. This is a church that is beginning to slip and beginning to turn a blind eye to things that it shouldn't. Seven letters to seven churches, and here we are with church number three, Pergamum. And Pergamum is a church with a flaw that does not show up on its website, but which Jesus can see. 
And it's a fault line that is running through this church that we're going to examine here in them. And I pray with God's help, examine also in us, in our own lives this morning. What kind of church do we want to be part of? Just please, please notice with me right at the start just who it is that is speaking. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, verse 12, write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. This is the Lord Jesus speaking. It is the same image from chapter 1, verse 16. Do you remember? In his right hand, he held seven stars from his mouth, comes a sharp two-edged sword. And you may have noticed, you're going to see this as we move through these seven letters, that in each of them, the Lord Jesus comes armed with something different for each church. Each letter, if you like, comes with different headed notepaper. And the different picture of Jesus given to each different church is relevant to the particular need of each church. So last week, chapter 2, verse 8, if you were a Christian in Smyrna, a suffering Smyrna Christian, and you were facing death, well, you needed, chapter 2, verse 8, you needed to know that Jesus died and came to life again. And here in our passage today, verse 13, if you are a persecuted disciple in Pergamum, then you need to know that the Lord Jesus Christ is heavily armed. You know, I, I think this bears repeating often in church life, and the, the image here is going to do its work on us here in different ways. The Lord Jesus with a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Jesus is heavily armed. The Lord Jesus is heavily armed. He, he said that himself, didn't he? Do not think I have come to bring peace on earth, but a sword. And the warfare of the lamb who is the lion, the warfare of the son with the sword, well, that is what the whole book of Revelation is all about. And here, as the church in Pergamum gathers round and Jesus speaks, he opens his mouth and they're waiting and waiting and they're, they're wondering what is his message for us. And look, as he speaks, a sharp two-edged sword comes out of his mouth. See it again in verse 16. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. This is the solution to this church's fatal flaw. Here is the medicine for compromise. It is the words that come from the mouth of Jesus the judge. Isn't that the point of the image? Here is how not to be a compromised church. Here is how to not have a structural weakness in the heart of the church. A hidden cancer running through the spine of a session or a vulnerability that runs through a whole denomination. Here is how not to have those things. So just two things to see today as we look at this together, as you watch on your screens with me. Here's the first thing. Number one, be faithful under hostile fire. Be faithful under hostile fire. Look, look, look at verse 13 with me. It's all in this one verse, this point. This is so important for, for here's what Jesus is saying. Look at it again. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. 
See, here's what the Lord Jesus is saying. I can see both what others can see, and you need to know that I can see what the human eye cannot see. Look at the verse again. Somebody called Antipas was killed for faithfully witnessing to Jesus. We don't really know anything about him, who he was. We don't know what happened. But that was public, wasn't it? He witnessed to Jesus, spoke up for him. Everybody could see and everybody in Pergamum could see that Antipas was being faithful under hostile fire. These believers in Pergamum are are the same. Verse 13, you did not deny my faith either. They are out there in the public eye. It's clear. It's open. Everyone knows that about them. Everyone can see that. Everyone knows who they are. But here is what is not visible to the human eye, to human perception. What does Jesus say at the start of the verse? I know that you live where Satan's throne is. They live where Satan lives. He was killed among you, Antipas, where Satan dwells. And it's not just that Satan lives there, that he has his headquarters there. Pergamum, the capital city, the province of Asia, well, that that whole area, they had the God of healing there. He was worshipped, and his logo, his emblem, was a serpent. There were pagan altars and shrines on every hill. You could not be open about your faith living in the city of Pergamum and not come into conflict in some way with the powers that be. Pergamum was not an easy place to be a Christian. The school CU was small. The university Christian union was non-existent. There were no other Christians on the sports teams on Wednesday afternoons. Uh, And here the Lord Jesus says, I can see through all that opposition and I can see through all the hatred and all the bile and all the suffering for my name. And behind it all, I can see what no one else can see. See what he says? We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in the heavenly places. If you spend your life, friends, as a Christian, thinking that angry people are your biggest problem, you have no idea of the scale of battle we're engaged in. No idea. This whole book, Revelation, it's a revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, it's a a pulling back the curtains of the world as we know it and as we see it. And here, as the Lord pulls back the curtains of human perception, he says that behind every brutal slaying of every faithful Christian, behind every cruel belittling of your name or your reputation, every piece of slander, pull the curtains back and you are staring at the beast, our enemy, the Satan. And friends, Jesus knows that his people live where Satan lives. I know where you dwell, where Satan has his throne. You know, I want to say that some of you watching today, I know that you know exactly what this feels like. Verse 13 is burned on your psyche, on your spirit, isn't it? Where you live, you can see this with spiritual eyes of faith. Where you live is where Satan appears to have his throne. He seems to have taken up residence all around you. 
Friends, I, I know that some of you watching this have suffered so much for the name of Christ that you cannot even step outside your own front door for a pleasant walk without feeling that the eyes of your community are on you. You are that man. You're that woman who's been in the press or on Facebook. Who, you, you, you're that person who believes all those awful things in the Bible. N- not many Christians, not many of us experience that kind of hatred and animosity in everyday life, but some of you today have. And you are right now hanging by a thread, aren't you, if you're honest? You are almost at the point of giving up. You are living with the public shame of being a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to say to you here in the words of the Lord Jesus, hold fast his name. Hold fast his name, friends. And here's why. Two reasons. First, because he knows where you dwell. He knows. That, that, that feeling of the eyes of the world kind of burning into your soul as you walk down the road, despising you for being a Christian. Hardly anybody knows what it's like to live where you live. But Jesus knows. There's a kind of building crescendo of intimacy here, isn't there, through this passage. Look at verse 17, the the second half of verse 17. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. We're going to come to this in just a moment. Jesus has a, a knowledge of the suffering Christian that is unique to that suffering Christian. There, there is a, an interchange of intimacy, if you like. A, a, you can almost say a special bond between the suffering Christian and the suffering Savior. It is unique to you if you are in the firing line. He knows everything about your circumstance. And I think we know what this is like, don't we, in life. Many of us have some kind of relationship where, where, where somebody, we would say, that person just knows Maybe a spouse, a parent, a sibling. You can, you can be with other people in a crowded room and somebody can say something and the entire room is oblivious to, to what's been said. But you know, and you know that that person knows. The person you love knows. It, it is the kind of the surveillance of the heart, isn't it, that exists between people who are bound together at the most intimate level. You are not alone where you live today. Maybe that's all you need to hear today from this passage. You are not alone where you live today and where you are suffering. Here's the second reason why you need to hold fast his name. Because, well, look, the Jesus who knows, and I mean who really, really knows, the Jesus who knows is not a soft Jesus. It's kind of what we think, isn't it? This language of, I know you, I know where you live. I'm going to give you something special that is unique to you. We think this is kind of all relational, warm, arm around the shoulder. I know, I know, says the friend. And then you look down at your friend who has his arm around your shoulder and you see that in his other hand he's holding a sword. He's armed, heavily armed. Friend today, suffering for the Lord Jesus today, these are the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. 
Yes, it is Jesus' words that are like a sword. His word cuts, doesn't it? But make no mistake here, the picture of Jesus wielding a sword is a picture of Jesus, the ultimate judge. Brothers and sisters today, do not allow your circumstances to dilute your devotion to Christ. Be faithful to him under hostile fire because the sword of judgment is in his hand. It means you and I don't need to hold a sword today. I hope in your anger and upset and pain there is no sword in your hand today. Let go of your anger and your bitterness towards those who are opposing you. This week on Twitter, I saw somebody right in front of my eyes being slandered in a pretty serious way. Quite a, a, a gross example of slander of somebody's character and name and reputation. Twitter's perfect for that, isn't it, unfortunately? Keyboard warriors all over the world. And here is how this Christian person responded when they were slandered. Here's what they said. They said this in response. Every time this happens, I find this is a real opportunity to obey the Lord Jesus by rejoicing when people misrepresent you. It is an opportunity to obey Jesus by praying for opponents and critics who willfully misrepresent you and attack straw man versions of your arguments. It is an opportunity to rejoice. To say that Christ's dishonorable name has been stuck onto my honorable name and now I bear his reputation. And you know why Jesus taught us to do that? Why he taught us to rejoice, to say that, to pray like that. Maybe you need to know this today. It is because he holds the sword. He will judge. He will judge. And so here's the second thing I want us to see from verses 14 down to 17. Be zealous for Bible truth. Be zealous for Bible truth. Number one, be faithful under hostile fire. But number two, be zealous for Bible truth. Love Bible truth. Stand for it. Fight for it. Live for it. Do you know that it is not suffering that kills a church? No, suffering doesn't kill a church. Look, here in front of us, seven letters to seven churches. And there are two churches where the Lord Jesus has only good things to say, nothing bad, no warnings to these churches. What's the thing that characterizes these two vibrantly healthy churches? Suffering. They are suffering the most. The, The church in Smyrna last week, the church in Philadelphia that we'll come to, suffering churches attract Jesus's sympathy and care like nothing else. No, friends, please... I want to implore you today, Trinity Church family, my dear church family, never fear suffering for the gospel. Never fear it. It is not suffering that kills a church. It's not suffering that puts a church's light out, that leads to the Lord Jesus removing our lampstand. No, it is never suffering. It is complacency, smugness, self-sufficiency, proud, dead orthodoxy. That's what kills a church. And here, verses 14 to 15, it is compromise. Compromise. A compromised church is heading towards being a dead church. A compromised church comes into existence when we hold on to one thing really firmly, but then we let go of something else over here that is actually just as important. 
Can you see what they were doing in Pergamum? Holding on to Jesus with one hand in verse 13. They were faithful under fire. But they had lost zeal for Bible truth in the other hand. Verse 14. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. Verse 15, so also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. The Lord Jesus couldn't be clearer, could he? The teaching that you hold to matters. It really matters. And just like how the church in Ephesus, the opening chapter 2, how the church in Ephesus, a loveless church, will become a lifeless church, so, so here in Pergamum, a truthless church will become a compromised church, known for its courage, known for its reputation, faithful to Christ, that's what people say about it, and unbeknown to everybody beneath the surface, a malignant tumor is silently growing because they are not zealous for Bible truth. Oh, friends, make no mistake, I'm almost certain that here in Pergamum, it's not what they are hearing from the front that is bad. Not yet. It's just that there are, what does verse 14 say? There are some there, some. Such a telltale little word, isn't it? Some, few, a a small party, a, a little group just whispering in the corridors and in the corners. A little yeast worked through the dough can eventually come to affect everything, can't it? I have a few things against you, some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. So this is an incident from the book of Numbers in the Old Testament where what what happens is the king of Moab, Balak, hires a pagan prophet called Balaam, and he wants Balaam to curse the Israelites. And before Balaam can speak, before he can do it, God stops Balaam in his tracks, and instead of cursing the people, God turns him around and makes him bless the people. But here's the thing. When cursing God's people wouldn't work, Balaam tried a different route, corrupting God's people. No way in through cursing. Let's try corruption. And what happens? You see it in the rest of the verse, verse 14. He, he, he go back to the book of Numbers and see it. He gets some of the Moabite women to entice the Israelite men to turn away from the Lord and lead them into sexual immorality and the worship of their false gods. Friends, here is a vital truth for us to see. Somebody put it like this. When persecution won't work on a church, maybe perversion will. Isn't that that what it's saying? A stumbling block in their way. When persecution won't work on a church, maybe perversion will. I think that's exactly why this particular example is used from the Old Testament, because the the people here stood fast, didn't they, under outright attack, outright opposition, just like verse 13. But they were susceptible to the Trojan horse of sexual sin growing up in their midst, unnoticed, unchecked. 
Balaam's teaching aimed to corrupt the people from the inside, didn't it? Look, one preacher put it like this. If the devil can't kill a church, he'll join it. If the devil can't kill a church, he'll join it. And here, as it so often is, friends, the the road to changing what you hear from the pulpit, the road to changing what you hear from the pulpit runs through the bedroom. That's the way to change the words that flow from here. If if you can't convince anyone to, to actually sign up for false teaching, then put a stumbling block in their way, first of all. Make them trip up. And as they get up on the other side of moral failure, so often what they believe about God and the Bible is shifting and changing. As a consequence of sexual sin, first of all, we need to be very, very clear about this, friends, that that the route to theological decay often begins with sexual play. Can I say that again? The the root to theological decay begins so often with sexual play. The, the, The danger of sexual immorality among God's people is that that comes first and then it leads to eventually reinventing the theological wheel. You know, I knew a lecturer, a theology lecturer years ago, a long time ago now, a Christian scholar who used to tell the story about theological students in his years of teaching, theological students at university studying all these different topics, you know, young young men and women away from home at university first time, and all of a sudden they're confronted with other religions and philosophy and problems in the Bible, and they, they have their their faith pulled apart in front of their eyes. And after a few years of that, they'd, they'd come and see him and say, look, I'm really struggling with my faith. Now, I, I'm, I'm doubting. I can't join up the dots. I'm not, I'm not even sure I'm a Christian anymore. It happens, doesn't it? It happens all the time, sadly. But my friend said, this lecturer said, he said, as I probe and talk to these students, here's what I've discovered. Nearly always there is a moral problem behind the scenes. I'm sleeping with my girlfriend. I'm in the grip of pornography. Something sexual leads to something intellectual. Sexual sin first, intellectual compromise second. Think of every major Christian denomination you've known that that has ended up de-emphasizing the Bible and losing their zeal for Bible truth, that has compromised publicly their views of sexuality and marriage. Think about it. That official compromise that gets written down in the church courts and in church statements, that official compromise came years later, didn't it? After the actual compromise, there was a test case. A particular relationship out in the open and in the light of those things, real people in pain who said, how can, how, how can this be wrong? How can you treat me any other way? In the light of those things, the courts of the church eventually come to shift. The church eventually conforms. Foreign women in Israelite beds led to foreign gods in Israelite temple. That led to paganism in the Israelite land. A a people who were meant to be God's bright shining light in the world ended up dulling the light to be exactly the same as the world. 
You know, for us today here, reading a passage like this, there are no ethnic barriers to who we can marry. No ethnic barriers at all. But exactly the same principle is at work for us that was at work here amongst the people in the Old Testament, amongst the people in Pergamum. Do not marry someone who does not know and love the God that you know and love. Do not marry someone who does not belong to him. God has bound us to be in a relationship with him, hasn't he? And our marriages are meant to be the ones that share in that relationship. For us today, the issue is not race, is it? But relationship. Does this person I am close to, wanting to be close to, do they know and love and know the God that I know and love? Before I consider marrying them. Sex in marriage only, with one person only, for all of life only. How zealous are you for Bible truth like that, friends? For it is Bible truth, and it stands out like a sore thumb, doesn't it, in our world today? Will you stand for that? Will you share that? Will you, will you teach it gladly, openly to your children? Will you live for it? I think these words of the Lord Jesus here, they require us to, to look carefully at ourselves, don't they? Am I meeting someone or something halfway when I shouldn't be meddling with it at all? Are you meeting someone or something today halfway? Are you halfway across a road when it's a road that you shouldn't even be on at all? A relationship is growing with a work colleague, an online relationship, a world of fantasy and unreality is taking root in your heart. Compromise entices us, doesn't it, through flattery and fantasy. It ensnares us through rationalizing sin and slowly deceiving us. It it, it makes what, what is actually evil begin to look good and attractive. And so there is always a warning, isn't there, from the Lord Jesus, a gracious warning. Verse 16, therefore repent, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. I think this is as much a warning for church leaders as it is for every Christian person listening. Notice he doesn't say, I will come to you soon and war against you. It is no, you as the church, you need to sort this out so that I don't come and war against them. Friends, please pray for your church leaders, not just us here at Trinity, but church elders and ministers the world over. Shepherds have a responsibility to see and sense danger where people only see safety. Shepherds have a, a responsibility to see What is coming tomorrow when people are only looking at today? Maybe what is here is here for all of us as well. Therefore, repent. Maybe you need to do that today. Come back to what the Lord Jesus says is true and right and submit yourself again to the sword of his mouth, to to the words of the Bible. Submit yourself to his sword. You know, I don't know what you make of this this second point. Be zealous for Bible truth. The word zeal can rub people the wrong way, can't it? Zeal for Bible truth. I don't know what what picture comes into your, your mind. What does it look like? 
We can get the wrong idea about zeal, can't we? It doesn't mean hot-headed crusades. You know, George MacDonald said this. He said, instead of asking yourself today whether you believe or not, ask yourself today whether you have this day done one thing because he said do it. Or whether today you have once abstained because he said do not do it. It is simply absurd to say you believe or even want to believe in him if you do not do anything he tells you. There's the way to gauge my own heart, my own zeal for Bible truth. Am I doing what Jesus tells me to do? And am I stopping doing what he tells me to stop doing? That's why the Lord Jesus here has a sword coming from his mouth. Yes, he will hold the sword in judgment one day, but it is, it is the same sword that comes from his mouth today, his living words. Friends, never buy the lie, please, that zeal for truth will make your heart hard or will make a church unwelcoming. No, it, it is the opposite. Hard words make for soft hearts. Hard words make for soft hearts. In fact, it it is soft words coming from a pulpit that leads to hard hearts among the people. Be uncompromising in your love for the Scriptures, for every word and every part of the Scriptures. For Look at the reward that Jesus gives. Verse 17, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to his churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it, written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Just like God fed his people in the desert, so he will keep feeding you, Jesus says in verse 17. Keep feeding you with manna. And look, for the person who holds fast Jesus' name and the person who loves the words of his mouth, look at this second half of the verse. I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone. White stones were often handed out to you if you were pronounced innocent in court. It was a way of being able to show publicly that you were innocent. Sometimes a white stone was used as an admission pass to a special occasion. It's how you got in at the door. And to have a new name written on it. Well, in the book of Revelation, naming things is really important. Just look forward to chapter 3, verse 12. Chapter 3, verse 12. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God. And the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven. I will write on him my own new name. See, on the shoulders of the high priest were precious stones. And written on those stones were the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. That the high priest had God's name written across his forehead on his mitre. It was a way of saying that God and this priest and these people are all bound together. That they share God's name among them. And when the priest goes into God's presence with the the people's names on his shoulders, it's as if he's there lifting the people themselves to God. When when we name someone or rename something, it is it is a sign, isn't it, of the most precious belonging. It's one of the most precious things we can do is to give someone a name. You know, I can still remember the surprise on my wedding day. 
the surprise of making it all the way to top table and seeing written there for the very first time on a, on a card, Mr. and Mrs. Gibson. I had a new name. From that moment onwards, I was a husband. Angela became a wife. And in all our families, your family today watching us, watching, people will have names for each other, don't we? Names that maybe only they know. And here's the thing, names certainly that no one else can use. Unique to you, to your relationship. Brothers and sisters, you know that one day at the, at the wedding supper of the Lamb, I think that's what this imagery here is all building towards food on a table, entry to a special occasion, intimacy. The very people who the world has despised but who have held Jesus fast, those people will find themselves feasting with the Lord Jesus and renamed by him in his presence forever, at home with him, safe with him forever. Oh, there is a promise of incredible intimacy and belonging here, all on the other side of suffering, all on the other side of living for Christ and dying for Christ. Brothers and sisters today, hold fast his name and love his words. Amen.